0: The desire of Titus' women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, center, and source. May God guide and encourage you through this message. Turn with me in your New Testament to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian Christians. Reading from the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 3 and reading down through verse 9. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him and all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Turn with me also to the little letter of 1 John. And note in the first chapter a theme picked up in that last verse of the section we read from 1 Corinthians, beginning with verse 1 of 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we've seen and bear witness and declare to you This is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. There are a lot of remarkable things about Christianity that distinguishes it from all the other religions of the world, but one of the ones that distinguishes and makes it absolutely unique is its value upon any human individual that you can find anywhere under any circumstances. Now, one of the things that characterizes every society is that it has levels in it. And in those levels, there is a valuation that goes with it. And so, some societies put more value on some people than they do on others, and put less value on some people than they do on others. But when you come to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no one who is valueless, And it almost seems at times as if the ones who are considered least valuable are the ones that in the gospel of Christ are valued the most. So that anywhere that the gospel of Christ has come, it has transformed the condition and the circumstances of stacks of people. If you will go to India, you will find that it's the outcasts that Christianity has done something for in a unique way. They have their caste system, and everybody is graduated in value down, and then the outcasts are the ones that are relatively valueless. But the missionaries carrying the gospel of Christ said, when Christ died, he died for one of them just as much as he did for a Brahmin. And in the mind of God and in the heart of God, the poorest least outcast has eternal worth, and he is just as valuable as the person who's the greatest and the best according to the standards. You go to some cultures where women are not appreciated, and the gospel comes and says that the woman is just as valuable as the man. And so in China, the missionaries came and said, You can't bind the women's feet. If you're going to be Christians and follow Christ, you've got to let them live as normal and have as wholesome a life as the men have. You uh, go to cultures where uh, you have little value placed on children, and you will find that Jesus says, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such are the kingdom of heaven... And unless you become as a little child, you cannot be a part of my kingdom. You're aware that uh, it was the Christians that uh, the Christian Church that raised the standard against slaves in the Western world. And if you've never read the biography or the story of William Wilberforce, you ought to do it, because it was he who fought the battle all his life until, in the British Empire, the slaves were liberated. And that put the pressure on us. And do you know what caused it? He had to take a trip to carry his mother and his sister down to the Mediterranean for for vacation. And the only way to travel was by coach. And it's a long ways from London to the Mediterranean by coach. So he looked around for a friend to travel with him. He appreciated his mother and his sister, but he wanted a little mail fellowship and so he found a friend who was willing to go with him so they took two carriages and he and his friend rode in one carriage and the women rode in the other and the william will before said to his friend now uh, it's going to be a long trip so we ought to take some books and so one of the books that they took was philip doddridge's the rise and fall of religion in the soul of man and they read it, and by the time they got to the Mediterranean, William Wilmerforce, who had little belief in God or anything religious, member of parliament, and from the nobility, began to get a hunger for God. The next year, when he took his mother and his sister to the Mediterranean, he asked his friend, and they took two Greek testaments. And they read the Greek. It's interesting when a member of parliament can read the Greek New Testament, isn't it? be nice if we had some congressmen like that today, wouldn't it? But anyway, they read their Greek New Testaments all the way to the Mediterranean and back, and when they came back, William Wilberforce was a believer in Christ, and out of that he said, you can't treat black people any differently from white people because Christ died as much for them as he did for anybody else. Now what that means is that the cross gives us a remarkable evaluation on human beings. And if Christ died for all men and all women and all children, died for every human being, then every person you will ever meet has eternal work. That's the only way you can explain the Salvation Army. I remember when I ran across for the first time Harold Begby's twice-born men. Harold Begby was a student of William James at Harvard and he became interested in the Salvation Army, and he went to London. I'll never forget reading the story of old born drunk, found on a bitter cold night under a pile of rags. Somebody thought there's something moving under there, and they opened it, pulled it up, and there was a mortal human being, dead drunk, beggar, wastrel, And they led him to Christ, and he became one of the great witnesses in London through the Salvation Army. And in our society, our society can scorn a fetus and say, just a cluster of cells, but we say, no, it's a person. And if it's a person, it's one for whom Christ died and has eternal worth. Now, the cross places an unusual value on a human being. You are worth the very blood and life of God because that's what He paid for you. But now there's a second line in the Bible about value on human beings that may be even greater than that. Because why did He die? What does He want us for? The incredible thing is it's not just His mercy that says, poor things, I don't want them to go to hell and spend their life Eternity there, and so in compassion He looks upon us. It may be that the greatest witness to the worth of a human being is the measure of intimacy in the fellowship that God wants to have with you. If you don't value a person, you won't want intimacy with him. But if you value a person, the greater the intimacy you can have, the happier you will be about it. Now, how intimate does God want to be with me? You know, there are a number of metaphors, a number of figures that are used in Scripture to illustrate that. The one that is most common and that we have, uh, I started to say peddled, I don't mean that pejoratively, but that we have let me say it, peddled most successfully in the church is a legal metaphor. It comes right out of the court system, and so we say that God wants to justify us. Now, what you've got there is a court concept. You've got a court, you've got a law, you've got a judge, you've got a citizen, and you've got a citizen who's broke that law and he's in trouble with the court with the state and the question is, can he escape judgment? And so we are taught that God doesn't want us to live under condemnation. God does not want us to live with unbelievable guilt and that sense of being alienated from the commonwealth of God, of Israel, of the fellowship of God. So Christ died to pay the penalty for my sin so that I can escape the judgment that the judge is obligated to place on me because I have broken the law. Now, that's been made very familiar to us through the Reformation, through Luther and through Calvin, and through the Reformation tradition that has come down to us. And it's a very beautiful and a priceless thing. You read the book of Romans and notice how it's developed there. But uh, do you know that's only one of the metaphors used to describe my relationship to God and the relationship God wants with me? He wants me forgiven and to know that I'm forgiven so that every time I see Him coming, I don't have to run. I don't have to live in mortal fear of that moment when I die and there I stand in the judgment. I can know that my sins have been forgiven, I'm clear. And I can go boldly into His presence. But now, stick with me for a few minutes and let me talk about some other metaphors that are much more intimate than that. Did you know that uh, the first one which is used in Scripture is not a legal one at all? Because, you see, if you go to the book of Genesis, you don't have a law. Abraham never heard of the Ten Commandments and didn't even have a Bible or a church. There was no ritual developed. There was no ceremonies like baptism and the Lord's Supper. None of that structure was here. All you had was a man who met God and they developed an intimate friendship. Now what fascinates me is that we've used the legal metaphor mostly to describe our relationship. But the first one, and the great one, and the one which is lifted out most prominently for us as the example from beginning to end is the one that's found in Abraham's life. Because when you come to the New Testament, when uh, Paul wants to talk about somebody that pleases God, he picks up Abraham. He writes it in Romans. He does it in Galatians. It's done in Hebrews 11. It's done in James where when they want to show a model for you and me, it's a man that never heard of the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses. What did he have? It's that pattern that you find which characterizes the book of Genesis as to how a person's to relate to God. You see it in the garden that at the end of the day, God came down with His creatures and walked and talked with them, and they had fellowship together. You will remember that uh, what was said about Enoch, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. You will remember that it's said about Noah that he walked with God, and because he walked with God, God had a chance to start a new world, a new society. And when you get to Abraham, the word walk is never used for Abraham in Genesis, but that's what the old story is. He meets him in Ur of the Chaldees and says, Let's go on a long trip together. And they travel together. Maybe part of it was donkey riding, but some of it was certainly walking. And when you come to the New Testament, I dare you to take the New Testament and notice how often the the term walk is used to describe the Christian life. But when the Bible talks about Abraham and his relationship to God, what I love is, if you look at Isaiah 41... If you will look at Second Chronicles, if you will look at James in his reference to uh, Abraham, what it says is, Abraham was the friend of God. Now, you know, those two things, friend and walk, belong together. Do you ever go to walk with anybody? I can tell you who you walk with if you walk with anybody unless you've got business that demands you be there. When you look for somebody to walk with, you look for somebody you like. And God looks down and says, I want you to walk with me. I want you to go on a long walk with me. Did you know God wants to be a friend with us? And that's the first one. And there is something sacred about friendship, isn't there? You know, there are a lot of joys in getting old because there are a lot of things that get sweeter the longer you have them. And one of the things I love about getting old is how long some friendships can be. Do you know how long I've known Andy Miller? He was a freshman in college working in the bakery with me. And that friendship has continued across the years. But I come to Indian Springs and I see Reggie Edenfield. He talked to me about entire sanctification when I was 13 years of age. <laughs> I come back to Indian Springs and pick up the friendship. It's holy. It's sacred. God says I want that kind of relationship with you. You know, we do it this way and he says I want to do it this way. But now that's only one. As you go through the Old Testament, you get to Exodus and you got the legal one started and the civic one. But as you go through the Old Testament, you begin to get another one. It's interesting the way it develops. It's the family one. Now, do you know, you say, when you get ready to pray, you say, Father, and you say it so casually. Did you know that Abraham never once called God Father? Did you know that Moses never once called God Father? Do you know that you've got to go in pretty good ways into the Old Testament before that relationship begins to develop? You will remember that first of all, God says, Israel is my son. As Hosea says, I brought my son Israel out of Egypt. And in the beginning, that Figure is used of God in relation to the whole nation, but you get to David and God looks and said, "This is my son. This day I've begotten him." And so you get an individual who's his son, and then he's the prefiguring of Jesus, and Jesus comes and he's his son, and Jesus says, "I want everybody to be my brother and sister." And if you're going to be my brother and sister, you're going to be a son or a daughter of the same one that I'm a son to. And the family begins to open up. And he says, when you pray, I want you to say, Our Father, which art in heaven. Now, do you know how radical that is in uh, some of the religions of the world? You know, one of the greatest sins a Muslim could ever commit would be to call Allah Father. I met a Muslim lady. She had been a Muslim lady, a very prominent lady in a Muslim country who had become a Christian. And she told about the thing that kept her for a long time from becoming a Christian. Because she said, I knew that if I called God Father, He would strike me dead for blasphemy. Because you couldn't get that intimate with God. And when her heart hungered and hungered and hungered, finally one day she looked up in stark terror. I'll never forget her telling us. She looked up in stark terror. She wanted to be saved. She wanted to be a Christian. And she said, Father, and fell flat on the floor, physically prostrate, waiting for God to strike her dead. And she said, instead of him striking me dead, he came and whispered in my heart, Daughter, The Father hears Him pray, His dear anointed one. He cannot turn away the presence of His Son. His Spirit answers to the blood and tells me, I am born of God. My God is reconciled, His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for His child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father Christ. I don't know what you think about when you think about that, but I think about Abe Lincoln and Tad. You remember that Tad was just a boy when Abe was in the White House? And one day Abe had all of the major counselors that he had together, the military leaders and the political leaders, because there was a question as to whether the nation was going to survive. And in the midst of an intense political discussion that had to do with the very life of the nation, suddenly... The door banged open, and in came Tad, and climbed up on his dad's knee. And he didn't call him Mr. President. He said, Dad, or Father, whatever he called him. And Abe turned and got the business with his son straightened out before he saved the country, the nation. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that. You and I have access to God like that because we're his children. But as you go through the Old Testament, that develops. There is another one that's even more intimate that develops. And that's the marital one, the spousal one. Do you remember when in the Old Testament a biblical philosophy of history began to develop? God had called Israel to be the means of reaching the world with the knowledge of the true God. They were to be the one to bring the light to the Gentiles. And he said, you are my elect nation, I'm your God, you're my people. But do you remember Ezekiel's philosophy of that? you remember he says in chapter 16 of Ezekiel, he says, Israel, speaking to Israel, says when you were born, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And when you were born, neither one of your parents wanted you. And so they pitched you out into the wilderness and left you in your blood to dry and to die. And the Lord God said, I came along and saw you in your blood dying in the wilderness. And I took you and bathed you and fed you and clothed you and nurtured you until you became a young lady. And when you became a young lady, you had a beauty about you that drew my heart and I threw my cloak over you and claimed you as my own, you are my bride. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? From friend to citizen to uh, child. Now, a child's relationship to a parent is very intimate, but not nearly as intimate as the relationship of a spouse to a spouse. And isn't it interesting how exclusive that relationship biblically is to be? I'm to have a relationship with Elsie that as long as I live, nobody else in the world has the opportunity of having. (laughs) And God says that's the kind of relationship I want with you. (laughs) I want you to be my spouse. Now, uh, You know, in our Protestant tradition, that has not gripped us the way it did in the Roman Catholic tradition. And we've lost something. I'll never forget reading, was it Tommy Walsh, was dying, 28 years of age. Young man so brilliant that Wesley said he thought of him as his successor. And he was unconscious, and then he regained consciousness. There was someone sitting in the room and said he sat up suddenly, and what happened was something like this. He sat up and lifted his face and said, the bridegroom cometh and calleth for me, and I must go. And he was gone. (laughs) Now, when I read that, I remember Hugh Latimer, Bishop Latimer of the Anglican Church in the 16th century. And if you want a blessing, you ought to stop at the bookstore and pick up a copy of Clara Stewart's Hugh Latimer. It's been put back in print and it's a priceless story of a man who gave his life for Christ. You'll remember he's the one that was burned back to back with with Nicholas Ridley in the circle, the square at Oxford, and uh, both of them bishops. And when they bound them together, uh, Latimer's turned to uh, Ridley and said, Brother Ridley, be of good comfort. (laughs) We will light a candle today that will brighten all England. And then they were burned to death. But do you know what happened the night before? They let a very close friend of his slip in to see him. The bailiff who was watching him let him do something he was not supposed to do. And when his friend came in, he brought him a package. And after his friend had gone, he opened the package, and in it was a white shroud. Because he knew the next day he'd have to wear a black gown as he went. But the next morning when he arose and was ready to leave the prison and go to the stake to be burned for Christ, the first thing he did was put on that white shroud. And he said, Today is my wedding day. And I would be properly clad. You know, that's a very different relationship to God. (laughs) And so he went, joyously as it were, through the fire for his wedding. Now, do you have that kind of intimacy with God? If you've ever loved a person, wife or husband or anyone else, I don't care how intimate that is. That's a sign of a reality that is even more intimate and richer and more blessed. You know, God doesn't want you all your days beating your breast and talking about your sins. That's the reason I believe in holiness of heart. He wants us to get beyond that where we are ready to run into our Lord's arms and into our Father's lap. We are not always breast because we've sinned so much. God wants that behind us where we get into a deeper relationship with Him. But the interesting thing is that spousal relationship is not the most intimate one. Because as you go through Scripture, you begin to find in the New Testament something that I must admit for years I slid right over. I don't know about you, but there are some verses I've never been able to handle. So what do I do? I skip over them. (laughs) And look for the ones that I can assimilate and handle. I want to tell you about three that for years I just slid right over. Well first of all, before you get to, it, let me say there is one that's, that's very precious that came to me early and appreciated, and it's the one I should take next. And it is that passage where you will remember Jesus says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now uh, that's what I call inhabitation. Paul talked about it in Ephesians, talked about the mystery of godliness, Christ in you and Christ in me, the hope of glory. Read the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. and In the 8th chapter, Paul speaks, and Christ is not out there, He's in here. And I thought, that's interesting. Else it takes me to the airport and I fly off to Timbuktu and go alone. And Jesus said, I don't want you doing that with me. (laughs) If you're going, I go too. (laughs) Elsa can get rid of me occasionally, but Jesus won't get rid of me and doesn't want me to get rid of him. It is an unbroken communion. Christ in you and in me. Now that leads the way to the last one, which is the one that for so long I slid over. If you will read the tenth chapter of Matthew you will find that Jesus is talking to the twelve and he's sending them out to preach the gospel and as he sends them out he gives them some instructions and one of the things he says is I want you to know that as you go if they receive you they get me. And if they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me, they miss my Father. Now, I had read before and assimilated the passage in John where Jesus says, If you accept me, you get my Father. And if you reject me, you miss my Father because I knew the only way to God is through Christ. And if you reject Christ, you've missed God, and if you receive Christ, you get God the Father. And I had no problem with that. But now, wait a minute. Scared the willies out of me. Jesus said, I want you to get to the place with me where... That when you go, I'm there. And if they reject you, they've rejected me. And if they reject me, they reject my Father. And if they accept you, they get me. And when they get me, they get my Father. Isn't that an astounding thing? Then I found the tenth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And Jesus is sending out not the twelve, but the seventy-two. And do you know what he says to the seventy-two? You see, when I read that about the twelve, I said, well, I guess that's true of apostles. But when he sent the seventy-two out, he said, if they receive you, they get me. And if they get me, they get my Father. And if they reject you, they miss me. And when they miss me... They miss my Father. So that's 72. And then I came to John 13. You'll remember in 12, the Greeks came and wanted to see Him, and Jesus knows the cross now is the only way the world can know His Father. And in the 13th chapter, after He's washed their feet, He says, If anyone comes after me and denies himself and takes up my cross, if the world receives him, it gets me. And if it gets me, it gets my Father. Anyone that denies himself, takes up my cross and follows me, if the world rejects him, the world misses me. And when it misses me, it misses my Father. The only way I know how to describe that is identification. And you know, there have been a few times in my life when I've seen it work. There are certain people that when they've shown up and they've gone, there's something inside me that said, Well, he's been here. (laughs) He wants us so close to him that anywhere we are, He is. And that what people do with us is what they do with Him. We're so inseparable that you can't cut a line between us and the eternal God that dwells in us. Now let me ask you a question. You know, I'm convinced that in the United States... In much of the way we've presented the holiness message, it's been a tack-on to conversion. You know, I've come to the place at times where I sort of am uneasy about that term, second work of grace. (laughs) Now, I believe that. But nevertheless, hear what I'm having to say. It's almost as if, yeah, you get saved, and then there's this icing on the cake. Nice if you got it. But now let's turn this around and talk about salvation from another point of view. If the blood of Christ is to get me to the place when I've been there, Christ has been there, then I need to be as clean as He is. And I need to be filled with his love undivided. Because the one thing I know about him is there's no division in his heart and in his love. It's total. Single-minded, single-hearted. If I'm to know the intimacy with God that God wants me to know, there's no way I can know it with a divided heart. It's got to be a single heart where through the blood of Christ, He's brought the totality of my being into obedience to Him and into love for Him and in commitment to Him and in following Him. And my life is totally His. Because, you see, if there's a corner of me left in it, when the world meets me, it meets two. Not one. And it ought to reject one of those two and reject it fast. And it ought not to be judged for doing it, because it's right. But if you come to the place where you're holy, is, then what they do with you, they're doing with Christ, because you and He are inseparable. Now, when I want to ask you about your intimacy with Him. I'm not asking today if you're saved, because we say, oh yeah, I took care of that. I want to know how intimate you are with him now. I remember reading the story of the Marcus de Rente who influenced Wesley so much. He had a servant who worked for him, very close to him. And so he would say to that servant, Now I need some time to spend with Christ, so don't disturb me. Don't let anything disturb me. And so he would spend his time with Christ and then he would go on his way and the servant would let life pick back up normally. One day Renti came to him and said, I need some time with my Lord. I've only got an hour. Call me at the end of the hour. I cannot afford to spend longer. At the end of the hour, the servant slipped into the room where he was. Durant, his eyes were closed. And he was lost in such ecstasy in the presence of God that the servant did not have the courage to call him. So he waited and came back. And then waited and came back. And then waited and came back. And after a second hour, he came in, and he didn't look. (laughs) He came in and just called out, Sir, and DeRenty looked up and said, Thank you. When I am in the presence of my Lord, Time passes so fast, an hour goes so quickly, I hardly know I've been with him. And it had been two hours. Wesley liked Durante. I want to know if you know anything about intimacy with him. Joy in his presence. If you do, then it will be true of you that where you go, he goes. And what they do with you, they're doing with him. And you see, Christ needs for us to know that. Because do you know the only way Christ can get to the world we live in? is through you and me. He doesn't have any other way. So we need to be instruments, sanctified, meat for our Master's use. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And Christ is there.